Welcome to the First Century Youth Ministry Podcast. A podcast looking back into the Jewish roots of our faith. For the way forward in youth ministry discipleship. I'm Heather. And I'm Jonathan. And we are your co-hosts. This podcast is part of the Youth Cartel Podcast Network. Hey friends, it's Heather here. Welcome back to the show. I've got a special guest on who is also named John, and but Jonathan is also here, Jonathan Brown. <laughs> but uh, we've got John Farwell on the show. We've had John on a few times. And as you all know, we've been walking through our series on Between the Testaments. We've been talking about things like, who were the Maccabees? What was Greek Hellenism? What's the Apocrypha all about? And for the last few weeks, we've been talking about the life of Herod the Great, or as Jonathan has so lovingly coined, Herod the Not-So-Great. And so this week, we're going to be looking a little bit further as we wrap up this series on Herod the Great with John, who is going to be teaching us on a few things about the life of Herod and why it was significant that God brought Jesus into the world when one of the most powerful Edomites to have ever lived, being Herod the Great, uh, was reigning on the throne. So, John, welcome to the show, and uh, we're excited for the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I think, am I am I now the most on guest? Yes, yes, yes. You brought that up last time, too. This is time number four. There is no one that has beat you on this. Congratulations. You are the top, top, top person. Either we, we just can't find anybody else to ask, or we really like you. So I'll let our listeners decide. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> at least, a, at least like an honorary plaque or something, right? You know, right. something. Yeah, I think I sent you a T-shirt in the mail. You should be wearing you a First Century Youth Ministry T-shirt. I did get the T-shirt. Thank you. And you should have my book, like in the background, just like hanging in, you know, like a bookcase with just my book on it, right? That's yeah. good marketing, right there. <laughs> cool. But I, it's, it's a privilege to be talking about these things with you all, and, I, and I'm glad to be here. And Heather, you're a friend. We've known each other for, gosh, over 10 years. Yeah. And when we share a passion for helping people understand the context of the Bible and why it's important and how the story fits into a real timeline, because sometimes I feel like the Bible stories can become so familiar that they almost become mm-hmm. mythological in our minds, even though we know intellectually they're not, but the characters can become so overly familiar and um, almost tropes of them become reality and versus the reality of who they really were in their time and their space. Yeah. And nothing like when when Jesus is born, as as um, Ricky Bobby would say, he always prays to baby Jesus. You know, how, how you see Jesus's birth and how you understand what was going on there, it really is the launching pad for the culmination of, of God's reign returning to the earth in its full form. Mm. Yeah, so we're excited to hear about that. So tell us more. You and I were kind of talking a little bit in the pre-show about, you know, this powerful Edomite that had come onto the scene and the significance of that in light of uh, biblical history. So can you pack, unpack that a little bit more for us? Well, sure. Well, first of all, I mean, the Edomites are Esau. I mean, those. Are, yeah. I mean, that's the descendants of Esau, one of Jacob's sons. So the other line of Esau goes on and lives in what place called Edom. And when the Babylonians come in and take off the, the tribe of Judah um, into captivity in 586 BC, the Edomites actually move into southern what we call southern Israel. And they fill in that vacuum that was left when the, when the Jews were taken out to Babylon. And they, and they basically stay there. And of course, I know, I'm, I unfortunately, I'm not listening to this, but I'm sure Jonathan talked about how Herod the Great's father helped Caesar you know, in Egypt. And that's how, but so they're, they're there. 
And then they, they become quote unquote Jews because after the Maccabean revolt, basically you were either forced to, to convert to Judaism or you had to leave or they kill you. So not many options there. So they're technically Jewish, even though his mother's in a Nabataean and he's there, but he's Edomite and that's significant. And because that's going to play into basically the book of Obadiah. I think it's uh, 28 or 32 verses. I mean, you could read it in, you know, five minutes. And, mm-hmm. and it's a significant book because it talks about the house of Jacob will consume with fire the house of Esau. Mm-hmm. And these two these two wombs going back to Rachel and, and Numbers 25 are warring her in her stomach. This basically this contention between these two brothers is going to continue, continue, continue. And it's going to play out again in Jesus's birth. As you said, the greatest Edomite who ever lived, who built these amazing palaces, who is the epitome of power because he has incredible wealth. He can do whatever he wants. He has the full support of Rome. And then the greatest son of Jacob is going to be born in a sheepfold as a baby. You can't get any more vulnerable or humble than Jesus's beginnings. And then you really have to choose who, where does real power reside? And in our culture, Anybody would look at Harry and go, I'll take that guy, because on paper, he looks fantastic. Um, and yet, God says, no, real power, as everything Jesus does and God does is so backwards, real power is the baby born in the manger in a stinking sheepfold. That's where real power lies. And real power lies in dying and giving your life away, not in somebody who can take other people's lives because they're so strong. And so there's this great, you know, as we talked about in, in before, you know the gospels are really offensive if you were if you were Herod or if you were Roman. You know the gospel is is almost like their Declaration of Independence. It's it's really a shot across the bow geopolitically, saying no, Caesar's not God, Herod's not Herod's not king, Jesus is. Yeah, and it's surprising though that there's very little said about Herod the Great, considering the power that he held. So I wonder, what do you think is there as to why? Maybe the Gospels is trying to highlight the fact that the true king of Bethlehem was not Herod the Great, but Jesus. You think there's something there, possibly? Well, I think definitely there is a there is a clearly a confrontational presentation because obviously Herod's trying to kill him. You can't get any more confrontational than that. Um, and so I, I don't I don't know why. I mean, uh, you know, Herod was this pretty significant person, and you know, you've been to Israel. Almost all of his palaces are still able to be seen at some level. Um, you can mm-hmm. go see the ruins. And yet, as, as a culture, as Americans, you know, we may think of Herod the Great every Christmas for like about a five seconds and then move on because we just don't we just don't talk about him. And mm-hmm. that's where really understanding the historical context in which Jesus is entering and the, the geopolitical dynamics he's entering into and the, the theological table that was set by the rabbis before him. All these things really kind of help put Jesus into context and help us understand why he's doing what he's doing, what what God's doing, what he's doing. I mean, Galatians 4.4 said, in the fullness of time, Jesus came onto this earth. Like, So there's a reason why at that particular moment in time with Caesar Augustus in Rome, with Herod great on the throne, that Jesus is born in that moment. And again, just depends on on your level of curiosity, how deep down that rabbit hole you want to go. I think it's pretty significant because it sets the whole foundation for Jesus's ministry on earth and what God's doing through him. Hmm. And that foundation would be that he's 
proclaiming the fact that he's greater than Caesar, he's greater than Herod the Great? Yes. I mean, like if you if you look at the inscriptions of Caesar Augustus that were written, they called him the bringer of peace, the redeemer of the world, the savior of the world. Uh, all these titles that in the New Testament writings get ascribed to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so clearly, if you were a Roman, the, the gospels are extremely offensive. And then he is he's surplanting Herod as king of, of Israel. And of course, he I mean, he technically shouldn't be king. He's not even Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's he's definitely dethroning Herod as well, all in the same time. I mean, it's uh, I mean, it, uh, you know, talking about when G- when when, Her- when Jesus was born and when Herod dies, that's a pretty big piece of the puzzle to try to put Jesus into a context, uh, uh, a real historical timeline. And the two debates is like either four BC or and I lean towards one BC. And all this, all this is based on Josephus. We've got one source of information to go off of. And there's an article that I read, and I can't remember the author's name, but he basically said there was a copying error that got put into Josephus. All the all the copies of Josephus from the 16th century backwards has Herod the Great dying in 1 BC. Hmm. All of the copies moving forward from 16th the 16th century have have Herod the Great dying in 4 BC. So it's like no one's wrong, you know. When people say, you know, nothing more insecure than to get a bunch of scholars in the room to want to argue something, and <laughs> we're like all Facebook looking at me. <laughs> exactly. Well, we're, we're all we're all looking at the same data and trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together in some way that makes a picture look like a picture, like yeah. trying to make all the evidence fit. The pieces all don't fit perfectly. We don't have all the information. The Romans were fantastic at burning libraries, so they they destroyed so much information. And so we're just trying to do our best guess to put the pieces together. And so, you know, depending upon if you like that article and you believe the guy's premise that Jesus was born or Herod the Great died in in 1 BC, um, the reason why I say all that is that in 2 BC is when Rome named um, Caesar Augustus the father of Rome. Like the highest title you could possibly have as an emperor, like you can't get any higher than to be the father of Rome. Hmm. So, and so again, significance for in Rome, Caesar Augustus is named the father of Rome in two BC. If Jesus is born around that time period, the the, the God of the universe is being born at that time. At the same time, that's happening, and Herod yeah. the Great is sitting on the throne. Right. Wow. So there's a lot of extremely powerful people who are contending for uh a spot as as a king right or as um as they would like to be king and ruler and powerful and here comes jesus onto the scene who essentially is born in the most humble way possible and god communicates through that message as you've just shared with us that the way to kingship is humility not rulership not demanding uh your own way not trying to to be a powerful person. Yeah. And to give power away. I mean, you've heard this before, but God, Jesus didn't leave, you know, heaven to go camping. He left the most amazing place that could, we could ever possibly imagine. I just had a friend, unfortunately, that just passed away and his sister was there when he passed. And right before he passed, uh, she asked him, I said, are you ready to go? And he goes, no. And he looks up into the corner of the room and says, oh, my goodness, 
it is amazing. Like God gave him a glimpse of where he was going. And he said, I'm going. And he passed away. Like we have no idea what Jesus left. But he, he, didn't, he didn't leave like a really nice place to go live here. He left the most amazing place you could possibly imagine to be born in a sheepfold. And again, we don't know what that's like yet. We have nothing to compare it to yet. But I'm sure it's a more amazing than anything we could have possibly imagine that the God of the universe left all of that to come and be with us and to, to understand what our humanity is like living as a person. Now, of course, when I say understand, he obviously is God. He knows everything. But there's knowing and then there's knowing. And the, the Hebrew word for to know is based on experience, experiential knowledge. So Jesus came and actually knows what it's like to be you and me in the sense of uh, to be a human being. And God get, God took on that experience so that he can fully understand and fully relate. And so we can understand and have a relationship with him at that level. Yeah. So that's I think that's really interesting. A couple of things that you've said about you know, looking at the biblical relationship between Jacob and Esau and that tension that would continue to uh, be at war between the two brothers and how that shows up. And we, if we're not looking, we don't see it, right? Between Jesus and Herod and who's the true king, who's the true ruler. Uh, and it's Yeshua, it's Jesus, right? Uh, as compared to an Edomite, Herod, who isn't a full-blooded Jew, who... Um, who, I wonder if he even really thought of God as anyone that had any type of importance because he cared so very much about himself. And mm-hmm. does it, I mean, doesn't it often feel overwhelming in today's world when we see all these powerful people, all these people who don't seem to love God, all these people who have all this influence. And in many ways we feel as though they're winning the day. Uh, their power is is too much. Yet God reminds us that when we humble ourselves, right, we will be exalted. He'll raise us up. He'll make us and give us more uh, kingdom work to do, which essentially is to love people, which Jesus exemplifies for us throughout his whole entire life and ministry. Well, it's so captivating. I mean, everything around you, we are bombarded every day with the idea that if you're not in control of your of your space of your of your of your life, that you're something lesser than, and so you're you're really being goaded to try to aspire to live a life where you're in control, and and you're in control of your environment. That's kind of like the epitome of 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 the uh, of the good life in American language culture, and it's just a we're never going to get there. We're never going to be in control of everything, um, and if you try to get there, it's, it's an incredible facade to try to maintain. I read an article about Bill Gates and all the things that he had to do to maintain his life and maintain his security, mm. um, to protect his children and protect his family. It didn't sound like a great life. All the things he had to do to protect himself and layers of security he had to have in, in his day-to-day life. Um, so it's just, but but we are bombarded with those messages constantly and um, in our advertisement and just our culture. And so it's so tempting to to want to say, hey, I, I want to pick to be like Herod versus picking to be like Jesus. And mm-hmm. yet, you know, he died a miserable death. Like his life wasn't fantastic. He killed several of his, killed three of his own sons and his favorite wife. And he killed his mother-in-law, which some people may want to do, but I wouldn't <laughs> recommend it. Um, 
I mean, just a lot of things in his life that he seems like, you know, wasn't fantastic. And he basically died going insane. Mm -hmm. Um, So yay, winner. Yeah. And I think the other thing too, we we get confused. We don't realize how God's got one story. And Jesus is a culmination of his story. And so, you know, as a bumper sticker statement, we say all the time when we're in Israel is that there was no New Testament when Jesus was running around. It was being written. And so the, the, of the 1600 allusions in the New Testament to the Old Testament, the only proof text that all the writers of the New Testament had to make their case, to make their argument, was the Old Testament. And so many of us don't understand the Old Testament don't understand necessarily how it was being used by the writers of the New Testament to communicate what God was doing as the fulfillment of his story. And, and Jacob and Esau and Obadiah and Herod the Great and Jew, Jesus is a prime example of, of something that often gets missed because people don't make that connection. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, but there's something to be said there about, again, the Bible keeps repeating itself on many things that show up in the scriptures, different patterns that repeat itself and that show up where God's once again communicating something that he communicated in the Torah uh, long ago. And we need to perk up our ears and pay attention because there's something deeper that he's trying to communicate here to us once again. So that's really cool. Those are, those are fun, fun. Oh, go ahead, Jonathan. I was going to say, it it reminds me of a a book by uh, Brent Strawn. Um, Title is the old Testament is dying. And in the the book, he draws the, uh, the relationship using the analogy of language, right? When language becomes a dead language, right, is when people forget it. They don't know how to speak it anymore. And so his point is basically that the, the nominal Christian in church today has has forgotten how to speak the language of the Old Testament without really thinking um, how that impacts our understanding of all of Scripture, right? And of course, if, if Scripture is what forms our understanding of God and our relationship with God, then it's impacting negatively um, how we understand the Lord and his work and his activity in the world even today. Did Andy yeah. Stanley write the forward to that? The forward to that? <laughs> yeah. uh, well, actually, uh, so Strong, <laughs> oh, ouch. Strong's, uh, his, his case is basically the, the opposite of that, right? Um, he has a second yeah. about um, Thank kind God. of the, he, he draws the, the um, parallel between Stanley, uh, Stanley and uh, Marcion. Um, so he's oh, got a, a really? chapter on that and, and kind of like the ghost of Marcion that's still in the church today, perpetuating mm-hmm. the same sort of thing. Like, well, we don't really need that. We have love. We have the New Testament. Um, but it's the problem is when it, you don't start any book 73 percent of the way through and then think that you'll understand the whole story or get everything that the author is trying to say. Yeah, well, I, well, since it's since it's the uh, May Fourth, I'll use this analogy because I say it's kind of like watching the last ten minutes of Star Wars and trying to figure out the rest of the story and, and try to re-engineer what happened before. Can't do it. Yep. Don't even try. Yeah. yeah. Although most Christians also read the Bible in the same order they watch Star Wars, right? They kind of like they start with maybe John three, oh, maybe Matthew a, a little point. bit, you know, a couple of Paul's letters. You know, they'll hear the first couple chapters of Genesis and then something about Abraham and David. And mm. some Psalms, because we like Psalms, most of them, most of them are nice. Yeah. Right. And that's how people kind of, they kind of compile the Bible uh, in their own image. Well, even George Lucas started out with episode four, The New Hope. <laughs> well, some of that just comes from dispensational theology, which, you know, it's a big $10 word, but basically 
dispensational theology breaks up these epoch of times in the Bible as its dispensations. And every yeah. time a covenant was broken, they think that covenant was done and moved, gone away with, and God brings a new covenant. And that goes until that covenant's broken all the way leading up to Jesus. Like I've actually heard a dispensationalist teacher say that grace did not begin until Jesus died on the cross. And so that really anything that happens before Jesus dies on the cross is really irrelevant, which is a Marcion's type of thinking. And of course, I'm thinking, I'm assuming you all talked about Marcion, so you want to know that what we're talking about with, he was a person who lived in the second century. So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah we have He's a person that. that lived in the second century who basically wanted to get all the Jewishness out of the Gospels and out of the, out of the Bible. And he edited mm-hmm. down the Bible to basically just Paul's epistles and a few smatterings of Jesus' stuff. But wanted to get all the Jewishness out of the Bible. Um, he's labeled a heretic, but he went on to influence a guy named St. Saint Augustine, who went on to influence a guy named St. Anselm, who went on to influence a guy named Luther and Calvin. So this thread of thinking gets passed down throughout history mm-hmm. from Marcion into the Reformation, which for evangelicals, that's about as far back as most people want to look. Um, in terms of when we look at our church history, we go to the Reformation and move forward. Well, there was 1,600 years of church history before that. And then, as you've experienced, Heather, on our conversations and why you do what you do today, is even before then, there was 2,000 years of God moving through his people before then that we don't even really think about as believers, as evangelical believers. And so it's a lot of, you know, we're talking about 4,000 years of human history to try to, to keep your mind on to understand what God was moving in this thread that he's woven throughout human history through his mm-hmm. people, leading us to Jesus, le- leading us to the Reformation and all these things that have happened. Um, but Marcion has had a huge influence. And I'm not saying that Marcion influenced uh, dispensational theology. That's He may have. I don't know. I think it's John Darby who wrote, came up with dispensational theology um, in the Schofield Bible, which, which popularized it because he put his notes into the Schofield Bible, John Darby. And... Um, as a covenantal theologian, I'm a theological mutt. You're going to have a hard time nailing me down to put a label on me. But if you understand ancient cultures, when you make covenant with one person, with a king, well, when the, when both of the people, the patriarchs of the family that died, the two kings that created the covenant died, well, the sons renew the covenant. And so the covenant gets passed down and is renewed, not not a new covenant, but the covenant is renewed and, and restored and kept. Um and not thrown away and discarded and, and then creating a whole new covenant. And I think that's more the, the way that I choose to read the Bible. And again, I could be wrong. I never try to say that I've got this whole thing figured out, but that's just the way that uh, I, I call myself more of a covenantal theologian. And there's two covenants, that covenant of Abraham that's fulfilled in Jesus. That mm-hmm. may be oversimplified because a lot of stuff that happens between those two people. Um, but that's generally the lenses in which I try to read the text through. Mm. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, John, this has been a fun conversation. It's helped us kind of frame uh, the life of Herod the Great in light of the life of Jesus a little bit better, helped us understand things about Caesar Augustus and Jesus and what God was trying to communicate to his people through um, the birth of Jesus during the time of these extremely powerful and influential men. And of course, as always, we got to talk about the importance of the Old Testament. So this is a fun conversation, John. Thanks for uh, helping us learn a little bit more and be challenged to ask ourselves, which king are we going to follow, Herod or Jesus? So friends, thanks for joining us for this episode and we'll catch you next time. Bye.